We live in a dark world. The evil of human trafficking exploits people around the globe. 24.9 million people are victims of forced labor. 4.8 million people are trafficked for sexual exploitation, among which are 1 million children. Women and girls account for 71% of all humans trafficked. The 20th century was the bloodiest of all time, with approximately 231 million people killed in wars and armed conflicts. People are turning away from God in record numbers. We expect that in countries like China, where 90% of the population are non-religious. What about non-religious countries like Sweden, 73%, England, 69%, Netherlands, 66%, Belgium, 64%, and Germany, 60%. America comes in at 39% of the population who consider themselves non-religious. Theologian Carl Henry wrote a book back in 1988 entitled Twilight of a Great Civilization, The Drift Toward Neo-Paganism. He accurately predicted, back in 1988, the growing moral and spiritual darkness in America. According to a Gallup poll in 2017, 69% of Americans believe that sex outside of marriage is morally acceptable, and 63% believe that homosexuality is morally acceptable. Despite a dramatic decline in abortions, we still have 862,000 abortions every year, and 24% of women will have an abortion by age 45. Racism is rearing its ugly head in America, and racial division is tearing at the fabric of our culture. Almost 20 million Americans battled substance abuse problems in 2017, and 40% of all hospital beds are used to treat conditions related to alcohol consumption. We no longer live in the twilight of a great civilization. Darkness shrouds our world today. Yet as believers... God calls us to shine brightly in this dark world. As the saying goes, the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. We should consider the darkness more of a challenge and even an opportunity than a threat. The message of Zechariah's fifth vision is, let your little light shine. God intends this vision to encourage us that no matter how inconsequential our light seems to be, let it shine. There are three questions we must answer about this vision if we are to understand the message of Zechariah. One, what does the lampstand represent? Two, what does the oil represent? And three, what do the olive trees represent in this vision? Notice, first of all, that our responsibility requires us to shine in the darkness. Zechariah 4, 1 through 5. 
Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. What did Zechariah see? He saw a lampstand with two olive trees beside it. Usually when we think of a lampstand, we think of the seven-branched candlestick called the menorah. Yet archaeology has demonstrated that this kind of candlestick was not made until the first century B.C., and in Zechariah, we are in the 5th century B.C. The early lampstands, which have been discovered in Palestine from this time period, were basically hollow cylinders with a bowl on top. Around the rim of the bowl were little pinched slots where the wicks were placed. Usually there were seven wicks around the bowl. Zechariah's lampstand had seven little bowls around the rim of the big bowl. Each little bowl had seven wicks, so there were 49 wicks for lighting. A vessel like this has been unearthed in Palestine, dating much earlier than the time of Zechariah. We are never told in this vision what the lampstand represents, because the lampstand was commonly a symbol for the nation of Israel. The lampstand was a key implement in the worship of the Israelites, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple. God always intended Israel to be a light to the nations of the world. Israel was supposed to be a witnessing nation, testifying to God's grace and glory, according to 1 Kings 8, 41-43. The prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3 that there was coming a day when Israel's light would shine brightly in this dark world in God's coming kingdom. Isaiah wrote, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. We, as Christians today, are also required to be bright lights in a dark world. Jesus called his disciples the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. And he told them, Let your light shine before men, that they may see our good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 So we are to let our little light shine in this dark world of sin. 
our responsibility to God requires us to shine in the dark like the little glow sticks you get at the fairs. Those little glow sticks show up better the darker the room. Do we? The darker it gets in our culture, the brighter our light should shine. You say, but Dave, how is my little glow stick going to make any difference in this dark world? Well, friends, by yourself, it won't. It is only the power of God which can help us shine in this world, leading to our second principle. Our resource enables us to shine in the dark. Zechariah 4, verses 6 through 10. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. The answer to our first question is that the lampstand represents God's people as the light of this world. The second question is, what does the oil represent? An ancient lamp without oil was useless. If there was no fuel to burn, the wicks would dry up and the light would go out. Without the oil, the lamp would not shine. We're not told anywhere in this passage what the oil represents. Yet it seems clear from these verses that the oil represented the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was the power source for any spiritual work. Just as the lamp was useless without the oil, so the believer is useless without the Holy Spirit. This is not a work we can do in our power, my friends. It takes God's enabling power to shine our lights in this dark world. The Spirit of God is the fuel that lights our lamps. It is not by might that we can be a light to this dark world. The word might referred to military power. We cannot win the world for Christ at the end of a gun. We cannot change America by power politics. All the missiles in our arsenal will never win Iran for Christ. And it is not by power that we will eliminate the darkness. The word power was used for the manpower necessary to carry heavy loads in Nehemiah 4.10. The load of spiritual revival does not rest on our shoulders, but in God's hands. We cannot win our country to Christ by our efforts and our abilities. 
And oh, how desperately we need to learn this lesson today. Our weapons are not the weapons of the world. It is not by our abilities to get the vote out or by our power to overcome the political opposition that we will win the culture wars. We will be a light to the world only, only by the power of the Spirit of God. Human techniques, human methods are useless without the Spirit of God. We are engaged in a spiritual, not a political battle for the souls of people. In the last vision, God addressed Joshua the high priest. In this vision, God speaks to Zerubbabel, a direct descendant of David the king. Zerubbabel was the man tasked with the responsibility to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. God, through Zechariah, reminds Zerubbabel that the obstacles may seem great, but the spirit is greater, in verse 7. The great mountain could be a reference to the mounds of rubble which the people faced in rebuilding the temple and the city. Both Haggai and Zechariah were encouraging the people to rebuild in Ezra 5. After nearly 70 years of destruction, the task must have seemed enormous to the people. However, it's probably better to see the great mountain as symbolic for the obstacles, all of the obstacles which they faced in general. These obstacles would have been persecution and political opposition to Zerubbabel's leadership, which we know from Ezra took place during this time. Zerubbabel was a man faced with huge problems, and he needed to know the victory would be won, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The task would not be easy. There are no shortcuts in God's work. The power of the Spirit is not a substitute for hard work. It would take nearly four years of backbreaking labor before the temple was completed. Yet the promise is still there to encourage them in the work. And the same is true for us today. The Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The obstacles may seem great, but the Spirit is greater. Friends, you will never face any obstacle so huge that God cannot handle it. Remember, the results may seem small, but the Spirit is faithful. Zechariah 4, 9 and 10 Sometimes we finish a job and look at our little lights in this world and say, it seems so inconsequential. The results are disappointing. And so we think that God has failed us. We expected more, much more. And it seems like nothing, despite all of our hard work. Well, Israel had the same problem. 
four years of hard labor rebuilding the temple, and it seemed like nothing compared to the glories of the past. The prophet Haggai exhorted them not to be discouraged in Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Take courage and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Zechariah tells us in verse 10, Who has despised the day of small things? God evaluates the true results of our work, not man. We get so discouraged when we look at our results and compare them with the darkness of the world around them. We feel like giving up. God tells us to keep shining even when the results seem like nothing. The obstacles seem huge and the results appear small. Yet the Spirit of God will not fail. He is greater than the world and he is faithful to complete his work. Our resource enables us to keep on shining even when we seem dwarfed by the darkness. I went to school in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains of Pakistan. Our school was located at 7,000 feet above sea level, and from there you looked up at the peaks. Talk about feeling dwarfed. <coughs> We used to go hiking with our dorm parent, Paul Davidson. One time, when I was in the sixth grade, we went on a three-day trek with the other boys in our boarding school. We left in bright sunshine, wearing sneakers and expecting no bad weather. It was April, and the trip was exciting. We started hiking that morning and quickly ran into snow on the backside of some of the mountains. By 10 o'clock at night, we were still trying to get to the lodge where we were to spend the first night. We were all cold, tired, and scared. That was when we came upon a snowfield on the side of the mountain, which we had to cross. The lodge was on the other side of the snowfield, so we had no choice but to cross the snowfield in the pitch-black night. We had one flashlight for all of us. One by one, Paul Davidson led us across the snowfield and came back for the next boy. I was one of the last boys to go. I remember sitting on the side of the mountain in the dark night and quietly singing hymns to myself and asking God to help us. When my turn came, I was so glad to see that 
tiny little light coming back across the snowfield to me. That tiny little flashlight that I had watched go across and back many times did not look like much in comparison to the darkness. Yet to me, that tiny little light was the lifeline to safety. We too are called to shine even though our lights may not look like much against the darkness. Your little light is the lifeline of safety to someone who needs to see it, even just one person. So let your little light shine, my friends. That light is the hope of the world, one person at a time. I should finish the story. Obviously, we all made it safely home. I had some frostbite on my fingers and toes that sometimes bothers me today. The next morning, we awoke to a raging snowstorm that buried the lodge in a foot of snow for two days. When the sun shone again, we looked out and found ourselves on a ridge looking back across at the snowfield we had crossed in the dark. It was then we were truly struck with the grace of God, because that snowfield plunged hundreds of feet down to the valley below. We didn't need to know that in the darkness of the night. That night, all we needed to keep our eyes on was that one little flashlight guiding us to safety one by one. Friends, the sinner doesn't need the sunlight of the day. He or she just needs the little light you hold to guide them to the Savior. Our responsibility requires us to shine, and our resources enables us to shine. And finally, our reservoir encourages us to shine in the dark. Zechariah 4, verses 11 to 14. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Remember our three opening questions. What does the lampstand represent? It represents the light of Israel in a dark world. But, of course, we can apply that principle to the light of all believers in our dark world. What does the oil represent? The oil represents the power of the Holy Spirit. There is one question left. And Zechariah is so puzzled by this question that he insists on an answer. What are the two olive trees? I want you to notice that there are two olive trees in verse 12, but also two branches or pipes from those olive trees which are connected to the lampstand. The ancient lamps 
often had a little spout or opening in the side to allow little tubes to be connected for filling the lamp with oil. This is the type of thing Zechariah sees coming from the olive trees to the lampstand. The answer in verse 14 is that these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Writers have variously interpreted these two olive trees. Some believe that they represent the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. A stronger interpretation identifies them as the two witnesses in Revelation 11. John writes of those latter-day witnesses, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth which seems like a strong allusion to Zechariah, chapter 4. However, I think we need to understand the two olive trees in the context of Zechariah, since that is how his listeners would understand the prophecy. Let's dig a little deeper to unpack the meaning. Literally, the text reads that these are the two sons of oil standing before the Lord. We have seen in this vision and the previous vision, chapters 3 and 4 of Zechariah, two key leaders of the nation that God is addressing in these night visions. They are Zerubbabel, the political leader, and Joshua, the spiritual leader. I think these are the two branches or pipes that connect the olive trees to the lampstand. Joshua represents the priesthood, and Zerubbabel represents the line of David, the heir to the throne, the king. If Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two branches or pipes, then what are the olive trees? Many commentators interpret the olive trees to represent the offices of king and priest in the nation of Israel. Joshua and Zerubbabel were only the current representatives of the kingly and priestly offices. It was through these ministries that the inexhaustible supply of oil came to help the nation of Israel remain a bright light to the nations of this world. Revelation 11 picks up on the literary allusion and applies it to the time at the end of this age when God's two witnesses are a beacon of light in a dark world. But let me take it one step farther. Jesus Christ is the only one who combines these two offices, king and priest, in one person. Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. Christ is the king-priest, and Zechariah will unite these two offices into one in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Christ is the ultimate branch who is both king and priest. Zechariah is told to put a crown on his head in chapter 6 as a type of Christ who will rule as king-priest over his kingdom. Here's what we read in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. 
Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So Christ is the ultimate olive tree. He is the source or the reservoir for the Holy Spirit to aid God's people in letting our little light shine in this dark world of sin. Jesus will later tell us several times in John 14, 15, and 16 that he gives the Holy Spirit to empower us to serve him today. We can apply these truths to our witness today. We are the lights of this world as Jesus shines through us. We are nothing more than conduits, pipes, or channels through which God the Holy Spirit works in lighting this world. We have an inexhaustible reservoir which encourages us to shine brightly in the dark for his glory, not ours. So friends, let your little light shine. Let them shine. Carl Henry wrote back in 1988 that America was in the twilight of a great civilization. He said these words, American culture is sinking towards sunset, but Christian believers are stretching towards sunrise. I like that. We are called, we are empowered, we are encouraged to shine brightly in a dark, dark world. There's no reason to be discouraged, my friends. This world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven, not earth, and we are to shine the light of heaven in the darkest places where we live on this earth. The world laughs at Christians and applauds the freedoms of the artists in the entertainment world who expose themselves in all forms of lewd and lascivious behaviors today. People think they have been freed from the restrictions of an antiquated morality. They flaunt their freedoms to do as they please and ridicule or even persecute sometimes Christians who speak out for God. Yet it was no different in the first century world. The first century world was filled with decadence, sexual immorality, infanticide, and perversion. The church shone so brightly in that immoral world that the gospel scattered the darkness. The world threw their worst at Christianity to obliterate Christ's followers from the earth, but the flames of Roman torches only served to fuel the light of the gospel. Take up the challenge, my friends. Let your little light shine. Let it shine when the world laughs in scorn. Let it shine when artists flaunt their flesh. Let it shine when our culture sinks towards sunset. Because, my friends, we are stretching towards sunrise.